2: Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Robert Lewis Wilkin. He is Emeritus Professor at the University of Virginia, the William R. Kennan Professor of the History of Christianity. He has several books to his credit, many books, in fact, uh, among them The First Thousand Years, The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, and The Christians as the Romans Saw. But we are joined by him today to discuss his latest book, which is entitled, Liberty in the Things of God, The Christian Origins of Religious Freedom. Mr. Wilkin, thank you so much for joining us on New Books Network. My pleasure. So this is a, as you stated in the uh, beginning of the book, a kind of a revisionist history of uh, religious freedom and its origins. So can you explain uh, your thesis and how it differs from the prevailing or dominant view?
1: Well, the um, prevailing view is that religious freedom was the work of the Enlightenment. In fact, uh, just a few weeks ago, back in March, uh, Robert Kagan, a very well-known political commentator and historian, had an op-ed piece in the uh, Washington Post in which he said precisely that, that it uh, was because of the religious wars that... um, People got very tired of religious groups fighting with one another. And so in that setting, then they began to think of ways in which the governments, particularly in Western Europe, would be able to um, uh, make possible people of different religious convictions to live together without killing one another. Um, I think I have the quotation right here. I mean, just to read it to you. uh... Only with the advent of Enlightenment liberalism did people begin to believe that the individual conscience as well as the individual's body should be inviolate and protected from the intrusions of state and church. That's Robert Cagan's view. Uh, What I uh, show in this book is that the origins of that particular notion, namely the liberty of conscience, really reach way back into Western history in particular to the writings of uh, early Christians in the second and third and fourth century, um, particularly in the Roman Empire. And uh, even though their arguments about the need for freedom to choose in religious matters um, was stated very clearly, it didn't really have a lot of effect on what happened in the Middle Ages because as uh, the society then became a Christian society, um, Christians dealt with um, dissenters, particularly uh, heretics, uh, Jews, uh, and others, in pretty much the same way in which they had been treated by the the Romans. So the the real argument of the book is that ideas that had been set forth in the early centuries— drawing in part on the scriptures didn't really have a profound effect on Christians' thinking behavior until the 16th century, that is, with the beginning of the various reformations in Europe. And when that happened, uh, and Christians were persecuting Christians, they began to read the older texts with fresh eyes, and fortunately, because of the Renaissance and humanism, many of them were freshly edited. And so ideas which had been first advanced in the early centuries began to be recycled and to be uh, rethought and applied to new situations. So it's, it's really a story uh, that begins early in Western history, but then really gets this momentum in the 16th century and then the 17th century. The point that I want to make is that what developed in terms of religious freedom and liberty of conscience, was not really a political idea. It was a religious idea, and it was religious people who realized that if you were a religious person, that was something that was within you, deep within your heart and your mind, and there was no way you could trace
2: that by external means. That's basically the idea. Okay, so you uh, trace this intellectual history all the way back to the earliest days of the church in the late 2nd century A.D., um, or I guess we now call it the common era. And in regard to particular theologians, uh, commentators, these are uh, people like Tertullian, Lactantius. um, And so this is really a, a tracing of an origin of an idea And then you also, uh, what you're doing is tracing out how that idea was received. So this notion of uh, religious freedom, what did that mean to the early church fathers?
1: Well, um, first of all, the term itself, liberty of religion, was first used by Tertullian of Carthage, a Christian writer living in North Africa, which would be present-day Tunisia. Um, But what what he said was this. He said, um, it is only just and the privilege inherent in human nature that every person should be able to worship according to his own convictions. The religious practice of one person neither harms nor helps another. It is not part of religion to coerce religious practice, for it is by choice, not coercion that we should be led to religion. And that was the basic conception that was first advanced um, in the in the third century. Um, so, what the key points are is that are that religion must be a matter of choice, of an inner conviction, and for that reason, it can't be coerced by external means, by the sword, or by any other uh, means of that sort. So, that's really the core idea. Um, But then it gets developed and amplified. Um, One of the things that um, appears fairly early is the notion of conscience. Conscience was a term that had been used by Greeks and Romans, Stoics, Seneca, for example. Conscience comes from the Latin word scientia, which means knowledge, and then con, which is knowledge with and it really meant an awareness more like consciousness of what one had done and if you had done things that were good you had a good conscience and if you had done things that were evil you had an evil conscience but what happens um with christian thinkers and the first one really to begin to use the term um a christian writer the apostle paul conscience becomes a uh, a guide to future actions, not just a recollection of what one had done, but a kind of tutor as to how one should behave. And then that gets developed in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas, and um, that all of a sudden begins to appear in writings of Christians of many different communions, not of any one communion, Catholics, Protestants, Evangelicals, Anabaptists, to mean that you could not force a person to
2: act against their deepest conviction, which meant their conscience. And so at the time that uh, these arguments are being made by Tertullian and then almost a century later by uh, Lactantius, um, who's the one that you refer to as developing the concept of conscience as a distinct concept, way of knowledge, you know, the the root there, conscience is cienter, the Latin word for knowledge. and this this is a knowledge that is divinely inspired knowledge right in other words this is not knowledge gained from experience per se but rather it's definitely has divine origins
1: yes that's certainly the conviction though it like all knowledge it's it's is formed by experience and it was formed by living within a community of people who believe certain things um we use the term, you know, well-formed conscience. But, but basically, conscience then was an obligation one had to God, um, not to oneself. And that's why I, I make the point along the way that it's, it's not a right of private judgment. It's really a statement of one's obedience to God. And that, of course, would be known through
2: the scriptures and through the church's traditions and faith. And so what was the motive? Uh, you mentioned Tertullian. He's really, I, I guess, the earliest figure, aside from uh, the writers of the Gospels, um, who develops this idea of uh, freedom to believe or the freedom of belief. What was the context in which Tertullian was writing that? What's the motive for him to write this?
1: Well, he, was, uh, he lived in a community that was being persecuted. Um, and And actually... One of the most famous uh, historical moments in the history of persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire took place in his own city uh, of Carthage. It was the uh, martyrdom of, or the passion of Perpetua and Felicity, two women uh, who were um, killed in the uh, theater, or the, or the actually not the theater, the. Uh, uh, the Colosseum in, in their city, and he may have been uh, responsible for writing uh, an account of that um, martyrdom, which is one of the most famous and the, one of the ones that's most widely read of early Christian martyrs. And um, so it was a very, for him, it was a, a, an existential matter, namely the people in his own community were being killed. And the, the, the social situation was that religion in the ancient world was an affair of the community as a whole and so and and what that meant was that the community as a whole had public ritual acts most notably the offering of sacrifices the uh, roasting of a, a bull or a lamb and um, and so all the people in the city then participated in these things. They took place outside. If you ever travel through um, the Mediterranean world, the altar where the sacrifice took place was in front of the temple, unlike the Christians who had an altar in the temple or in the church. And so it's a very public matter. And so when they had these sacrifices, the Christians were noticeably absent. And so the people resented it. Um, it's really as simple as that. Um, at the, um, the community expecting that everyone would participate in
2: the uh, public religious rituals. So throughout uh, the Mediterranean world where Christianity has uh, begun to spread in this second and third century AD, you have a, a belated, persecuted community of Christians, of course, and then a change occurs Around the early fourth century, with uh, most famously uh, three thirteen, with the Edict of Milan, which, of course, you point out is not merely a toleration of Christians. It's a, It's not restricted to Christians per se. It's it's essentially a religious toleration in the broader sense. Um, and so, explain how important this Edict of Milan is both for Christians and for the Roman Empire as a public, well, uh, in terms of public religion. It's, it's really not an edict, it's a letter, and the, the term edict
1: is kind of fixed to it, but it was an actual letter of Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor and another emperor by the name of Licinius. And it was an effort to try to bring some order into the disorder that the presence of Christianity had brought. And what it does is it acknowledges the right or the freedom of, people who belong to religions that are different from what's publicly acknowledged are able to practice their religion without um, interruption. And um, it makes it very clear that it applies not only to Christians, but to all others. The truth of the matter is that it didn't have much of an impact because as the decades went by, Toward the end of the 4th century, another Roman emperor by the name of Theodosius proclaims that the religion of everyone living in the empire should be Christianity. And um, so then you what you have is a beginning of a new Christian society. And over time, that meant that those people who were not Christians or who were not Orthodox Christians were marginalized, and the people who suffered the most were the Jews, not so much in overt ways, but gradually just pushing them off to the side of society. So the document is a very significant one, but it, it is not one that had a lot of impact in the decades and generations that followed. It's not until the sixteenth and seventeenth century that people begin to remember and to talk about it and to quote it. Um, so it's very significant, but like you know, many things in history just. Because they look significant to us, they weren't so much so significant to the contemporaries. And so uh,
2: as the Roman Empire becomes essentially a a Christian-dominated empire, um, we also have, of course, eventually, not long after this happens, uh, we have the decline of the empire and its dissolution. And so as the Middle Ages uh, begin, what's the status of... uh, Dissenting religions um, in these different communities.
1: Well, um, first of all, the empire—the empire what happened by, say, the year 500. You really had two empires. You had one that was in the east; that would be the Eastern Mediterranean, it would be Greece, Asia Minor, which is Turkey, Egypt. That continued on, and um, the center was Constantinople. But in the west, the empire really came to an end you know, a little before the year 500. And what begins to develop is a new Western Christian society, primarily in France, what became France, what became Germany and Britain and, and uh, uh, Italy. And there, Christianity was the dominant religion. The, the great figure there, of course, was Charlemagne, uh, roughly around the year 800. And what and the society did is it allowed the Jews to continue to practice their religion, but with restrictions. Uh, so, for example, um, they didn't like the Jews building new synagogues. They didn't like the synagogues to be close to a church. Or one bishop complained because we could hear them chanting, you know, when we're having our liturgy. Um, and so gradually the, the society began to marginalize the Jews And then um, as the centuries went by and with the rise of the Crusades, which were really concerned about the Middle East, the Crusades, the idea of a crusade to recover lands that had been captured by the Muslims, so inflamed the people in Western Europe. And then they began really seriously to persecute the Jews. And that's the inheritance that, of course, we now live with in our Western society. It's a very sad chapter in the history of Western civilization and, of course,
2: a very sad chapter in the history of Christianity. So as the Western Empire uh, declines, breaks up, and is dominated by different Germanic tribes, um, the religion of Christianity, Christianity, of course, is still... It, is it spreading still? Uh, oh, of course. And so, I mean, yes, go ahead. Well, I mean, that's
1: one of the great stories is it spread to Britain, the British Isles. It spread into the Scandinavian countries, and then it spread into the Germanic tribes on the other side of the Elba River. And then eventually it begins to move further east into Poland. That's and so Poland was missionized from the West. That's why Poland is historically a Catholic country. And those lands that were east of Poland, Bulgaria, for example, and then, of course, this, the um, uh, Russian lands, they were missionized from Constantinople, and that's why they are Eastern Orthodox Christians. So the the mission really extended well until the 12th and the 13th century. And by, by the 13th century, pretty much all of Western and Eastern Europe was now Christian.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: And so as Christianity is spreading throughout Europe, is there a need at all, with the exception of the Jewish question, is there a need to tolerate or deal with any kind of sin?
1: Well, yes, and uh, you can read Amosquinas is is always a very, very rich source and the issues that arose were twofold. One is people who did not hold all of the one who was brought to because it's not orthodox people so that would be one case. And so you've got a number of those that uh, during the high and the late Middle Ages. And then as Jews and um here again the principle that was set forth earlier was uh, clearly observed, namely that you can't force a person to become a Christian, and you can't force a Jewish parent to baptize their child. So there were some safeguards. But again, the, the pressure in this society was really to have a uniform religious observance, which is what most cities and towns had. Um, so then there was always a dissenting uh, presence, Jewish or... But does that, does that presence... Force any development? Very little, very little. That's why the the point that I make in the book is that it was the Reformation, and the, the phrase that I use it's a phrase that I got reading uh, uh, Shakespeare. It it, it was so I can find it here. It was the rough torrent of occasion, the rough torrent of occasion, and it was the rough torrent of occasion. And so the the first real instance. Uh, where you begin to find an appeal to freedom of conscience, curiously, is a um, monastery of women convent in Nuremberg. Nuremberg was close to Wittenberg and the Reformation came there early and the city magistrates took over religious affairs in the city, pretty much uh, pushed the bishop aside. And so they began to dismantle the monasteries. And this one, Abbess, a woman named Charitas Pirkheimer, wrote a journal week by week of what they were doing to close the community, shut it down. And she then says, it's kind of strange that here we got the reformers telling us that they have to have the freedom of the gospel and they won't allow us to practice what we believe and to follow, as she uses the word, our conscience. So it's curious that the the first, in the Reformation, the first person to appeal to liberty of conscience is a
2: Catholic nun. (laughs) And so she's doing this uh, simultaneous with the um, arguments that uh, Luther is making. Um, And this is the break point, as you identify it, uh, in terms of how the public concept of religious observance, religious practice, Uh, really brings this division within the community in other words this appears to be pretty quickly not just a a debate about um the form that the church should take as an institution but also whether you can even have um, simultaneous different practices in in the same community right
1: yes and it's it's very significant i i I even quote uh, another sister who believed, uh, belonged to that same community, who said, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, and it sounds like she's uh, mimicking Luther. Uh, We don't know whether Luther actually said that. But the point being, and this I think is very important, is that whether you were a Protestant or whether you were a Catholic, they were all drawing on common Christian materials that had been developed in the early and the middle, Middle Ages. Um, so you can't say, I mean, some people think that religious freedom uh, uh, began with the Baptists in the 17th century, but uh, it, it goes back earlier than that. Now, the other thing that you mentioned, uh, which is important, is also in the city of Nuremberg, um, early on with the Reformation, you began to have some people who wanted a more radical Reformation than Martin Luther did. They wanted to have, they wanted they were what we call them Anabaptists, which is what Baptists comes from. That is, they wanted to rebaptize. They didn't believe in baptism of children. And so they began to form their own communities, elect their own clergy, and to be independent. Very significant, because what it means is is that the development of religious freedom is as much about the rights of religious communities as it is about the rights of individuals. Um, And then that, as the decades go by, become much more important um, in the debates. They're really not concerned about what a certain individual will believe, but they they were concerned that they didn't want to have a disruptive religious
2: fellowship in the midst of their cities. And that seems to be one of the key concerns uh, in these debates is the notion of peace and good order. Yes. The conviction was, and it had been uh,
1: deeply immersed in society for centuries, that you can't have peace and order in a society if you have more than one religion. You know, it's hard for us to imagine because we, we, we don't know any other world, but almost
2: everyone took that as self-evident. And so what's the dissident's response to that? In other words, that peace and good order... Uh, has to be requires uniformity of faith and observance and practice and so the dissidents argument in response to this is what well
1: the, the the argument was is that uh you have to grant that there are religious convictions that are a matter of conscience and these need to be respected actually one of the most interesting persons that i read was a man named jean baudin and um, he uses the word association (collegium) in Latin um, to talk about associations of physicians or lawyers or plumbers or, or whatever, and also religious association. He said the difference between the religious associations <coughs> and the others is that their community is organized around their beliefs, their convictions, which are a matter of conscience. <coughs> so what he in fact is saying he's not a great uh, proponent of religious freedom he says you have to deal with religious communities differently than others because they have um convictions
2: that are based on conscience and so it's in this context in the early 16th century when as you mentioned earlier we have uh the recovery of the arguments of people like um Tertullian and Francis and their arguments regarding conscience and concepts that are basically recovered by these theologians uh, are active in these debates, right?
1: Yeah, so what you have then is a kind of a new burst of uh, intellectual uh, fervor as people tried to work out uh, the terms on which they hope society would recognize the rights of independent religious fellowships, call them sects, we would call them churches. And there were very different ways in which, and then um,
2: in which they made the case. And so when these debates are occurring, it's not just the abstract concept of conscience. But also, it's it's really where they're utilizing biblical text. So you talk about, for example, the recovery of St. Augustine's uh, use of, of a passage from the book of Luke, where he talks about compelling people um, to come in. And then there's also the point, uh, the, the quote, uh, famous quote of rendering unto Caesar from the book of Matthew, which is from Jesus himself. And so these are all... Um, utilized in this context of this debate, right?
1: Well, yeah, as, as it became clear that what the central issue was, the status, the privileges, the rights of a religious community, then people realized that you had then to say something about the distinction between religious fellowship and civic fellowship. And so the biblical text of render unto Caesar and to God, things that are of God, becomes one text that is used. And so they talk about the ends, that is the purposes of a religious community and purposes of a civic community are completely different. And one of the nice uh, phrases that um, appears regularly is that the civic authorities have no cognizance of religious matters that is that they don't have any say in religious matters. And up to that point, everyone assumed that political authorities, the civic authorities did have a say in religious matters. And that really is, you know, the source of um, our later notions
2: of the separation of church and state. And so that brings me to the point that we've been, um, Alluding to, but haven't discussed forthright, which is what is the status of, uh, and I know this is a a jam packed question in terms of what it begs for as an answer, but what is really the status of the separation of church and state uh, by the uh, uh, 16th century? Um, As we understood it, of course, we talk about the official religion of the Roman Empire after Theodosius is uh, Christianity. And that is essentially the model that's being used uh, up through this time, right? And so... Yeah, yeah well, I can mentioned two figures here.
1: First, well, there are a string of um, Baptist writers. Um, the most famous is uh, Roger Williams, who, of course, founded uh, Rhode Island. One who is l- less known is a man named uh, John Owen. He was in Britain. He was a, a dissenter. And the issue was under English law in, say, the 1600s, you were required to go to the parish church. You were not allowed, and you were fined if you didn't, you were not allowed to gather a group of people independently, get together to read the Bible, uh, have someone preach, celebrate Holy Communion and so what happened was is that there needed to be an argument that conscience had to do with more than what a person's inner belief was everybody agreed that agreed that you can't really touch what a person believes internally but you can regulate what they do externally in terms of religious practice and um Several writers, one that I was particularly um, interested in is a man named John Owen, he said, no, conscience has to do with not only what you hold in your heart, but it has to do with what you do. In other words, conscience requires action. And so that was his way of saying that you cannot impose on people what they will do, must do, in religious matters that's something that is up to the individual and the community to which he belongs. And so he really cuts through and, and, and says, we have to keep these two distinct. And then of course, John Locke basically gives the same argument um, that um, you have to keep the ends of the civic authorities from the ends of religious communities. If religious communities are there to praise and worship God, And the civic community is there to provide safety, security, preserve property, etc.,
2: etc. Now, of course, one of the points you make is that the Reformation itself ultimately strengthens the state because the unity of the church is broken. And that means there's essentially less toleration in the respective regions where Protestantism versus Catholicism uh, becomes even stronger in its uh, association with the state, right? In other words... Yes, that that's
1: very, very significant because what happened is um, once you... Let's take the... In the Lutheran lands, once you dispense with the bishop, then it's the prince or the magistrates who have the authority to regulate religious matters so that the church then becomes... Of the church is, it's become communities that are concerned only about um, their internal affairs, and of course the magistrates had a great interest in regulating religion, and so they are are strengthened, and the church uh, loses. The phrase that I use is they they have authority but no dominion. They they can only regulate their own people, and the magistrates, you know, that we can regulate everybody because we're the people who who run the government. And that, of course, was uh, very much the case in England, um, and that's why so much of the literature uh, comes out of England in the seventeenth century, which is, of course, where John Locke was.
2: Now, can you um, is is England a special case? I mean, in some ways, obviously it is, but is it a special case because of the uh, initial formal reasons for the break with Rome?
1: I suppose it is, and, and for, for a very simple reason is that when Henry Eighth in the early 16th century, broke with Rome, basically he established uh, the king or the queen as the primary religious as well as political authority. And so you had really a national church. You no longer had a pope, you had bishops, but the bishops were, of course, under the king. And so England then becomes, in a way, the most so much the most repressive, though in some ways it was, of all the territories in in the regions within Europe, because the political and the religious authority were now put in the hands of the king or the queen, um, and
2: uh, so there was appeal then <laughs> um, that was possible. Yeah. So what's striking to me is um, in terms of the ideas that come out of what will eventually become the Civil War um, in the 1630s and 40s is uh, this concept of a, a fear of peace, excuse me, a fear of civil war, which, of course, most famously motivates um, Thomas Hobbes in his book. And, of course, Hobbes uh, is not really a concern of yours in this book because it's not, he's not primarily concerned with uh, faith and liberty of conscience as Locke is, but it was striking to me, and this, I guess, is kind of an aside. um, It's just striking to me that England seems to be this special case where they go from one extreme to the other. It's either extremely Catholic and repressive, or it's extremely Church of England and repressive, not so much per se Protestant. (laughs) That's that's well
1: put. Church of England and repressive, that should still be not the model, you know, that people think of the Church of England. But it it was very repressive uh, on... On uh, all dissenters, not only the Baptists but the Catholics, uh, and uh, and it it's in, I think large member be, measure because of the nature of English society and its religious and political makeup that so much of the literature that um, develops notions of religious freedom, so much of that
2: literature was written by um, by Englishmen, and of course one of the other areas you you as you deal with. Um... I want listeners to understand that this is not just about uh, Germany and England. It's also about the Netherlands and uh, their revolt, and that uh, plays a really important historical role because um, you describe how the Civil War or the, the rebellion in the Netherlands from uh, rule by Spain in the 16th century is also instrumental in creating this area of what will eventually become a degree of tolerance uh, in the Netherlands that ultimately will impact English society itself. So can you explain how these historical contexts are really shaping this uh, debate about public religious observance? Well, uh, Netherlands is very important
1: because <clears throat> you had um, the Calvinists, who were the primary uh, Protestant religious groups in, uh, in, uh, in the Netherlands, and um, as the decades went by, the late 16th century, uh, particularly in the North, these then established themselves as the religion of um, their city or their territory. And as a result of that, um, some uh, then began to uh, develop arguments that, um, that, that, that you have to respect In fact, they use the term, religion is never simply a private matter. And it's not enough simply to grant people liberty of conscience, but you have to allow them space for the exercise of religion. Now, I'm not sure that that's the first time that phrase occurs, but when I read it, I was astounded because I hadn't really seen it up until that point. This would be around 1680, 1580. And so what happens then as the... uh, the English situation uh, um, becomes more repressive. Englishmen then move to to the Netherlands, and they then begin to pick up ideas from the um, the Calvinists and the Anabaptists who are in in the Netherlands, and then they bring those back to England. So there's, you know, it's very close, um, and uh, so the Netherlands become then an important source and for for the English dissidents and the English Baptists, and I discussed a couple of these people there. Uh, in fact, one of the most significant things that I ran across was that the uh, there was a, a Dutch writer by the name of Twisk who wrote a huge book of citations from earlier Christian writers on religious freedom and liberty of conscience. So, Holland becomes then the
2: kind of nub, a uh, center that influenced particularly English dissidents. And I was also uh, thinking of, uh, you mentioned this other writer, uh, Dirk Cornhurt. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Cornhurt, yes. He
1: he was a, a major Calvinist figure. And uh, yeah, I don't really deal with him at greater length because I, I, I had other sources that were able to make the point. But he clearly was one of the major figures. And there is... There is a an interesting debate um, that he had with a um, a magistrate, and the question really turned precisely on that is that whether you could allow people to gather and practice their faith independently of what the the city as a whole held to.
2: He, he's key figure in that uh, regard. Well, what one point that was striking me, one theme. That was striking to me, and this is just my reader's perception, and I'm curious if this resonates with you as
1: well. The today. reader's perception is the most important.
2: <laughs> well, I'm curious if the uh, this notion of peace and good order, both sides, in in my impression during the Reformation, use it to the best effect they can. In other words, the the reformers argue in response to the claim of the uh, dominant. Uh, Catholics, uh, as they're responding to the Reformation, Catholics argue uh, you can't have dis- uh, dissent because otherwise you're breaking apart the community. It's one and the same. It's hand in glove. Uh, the French, I think that you quote the famous French line, one one king, one law, one faith. Um, and But on the other side, the Reformers argue that You need to have toleration of these different sects in order to achieve peace. And so this goal of uh, of obtaining public peace and the absence of strife in ultimately what does become civil war, um, it seems to be one of the motivating factors in pushing these arguments forward. Well, everybody
1: realized the importance of order, good order, public order, and public peace. And so the question that underlies all of these debates is can you have such order, such peace, such stability if people have fundamental disagreements on matters of religion that lead to formation of independent religious communities? Again, I have to keep emphasizing it is the independent communities. Religious belief of individuals, that doesn't count for much, There are some instances where it does come. but it has to do with whether you're splitting up the community so that people who live on the same block are going to different fellowships when they want to pray. And they didn't they couldn't see how that was possible to have that and still maintain good
2: order. And I think that that's president in our world today. Right, and so that's and I see that connection, and you make you draw that connection to our world today uh, near the end of the book when you talk about uh, the the conceptualization of religious freedom in the American context, and I want to get to that moment. But what was striking to me is that this this need and obvious perception that uh, public order is achieved through toleration. It seems to be, and this is uh, the part that I want to ask you about: is that need for public order? the key to understanding how the debate about conscience moves from simply a concern with individuals, uh, the, the original concern that perhaps Tertullian had, um, to the concern for a political right, meaning a freedom from government interference. Is that need for public order and concern for groups, something that was present in the minds of the writers in the uh, 17th and 18th
1: century? Well, it certainly was, uh, in the minds of the people that i mentioned in roger williams john owen uh john locke i mean that was the issue that that most uh exercise them uh and so uh, you you keep using the word toleration as you know because you have read the book and you've read it very carefully i i, I can see is i i tried to avoid that word because toleration um in its historic sense, and I think in its, in its core meaning, is is a right or at least a privilege or an accommodation that the ruling authorities give to religious communities. I tried to emphasize that religious freedom and liberty of conscience was a right that was a natural endowment, not something that the government gives. If the government gives, it can take it away. Um, so i i think and not everybody of course saw that so clearly i don't think john locke saw that so clearly and jefferson says we have to go further than him but um roger williams saw it uh, john owen saw it and and others saw it so that, that that's i think an important uh, qualification
2: uh, that, that needs to be made and so as the 17th century progresses of course we're concerned with the american colonies and the motives for different people migrating to uh, the American colonies. And by the time the revolution occurs, you've got multiple different states, former colonies, that have their own public churches. Um, so how does this notion of religious dissent as it had developed in 17th century England and Netherlands, how's that impacting, um, so to speak, American, may not be a unified American, except, well, I um,
1: I have an epilogue that deals with that. I uh, my uh, primary historical uh, work has been on the ancient world and to a certain extent the Middle Ages, and so in some ways this book was a uh, uh, moving into a territory that was relatively uh, uh, unknown to me, and um, so I was able to to feel comfortable coming up as far as law was concerned. But I realized when I got to um, the American colonies that, that that would be a bit much for me to go too deeply into this. And so I simply wanted to make a, a, couple, of, a couple of points. And the, the point that I make is, is this. If you go to 18th century Virginia, and you go to James Madison, who lived in central Virginia. He lived near Culpeper in a little town close to Orange. Um, the established religion was Anglicanism. And what happened in the 18th century, this is with the, uh, uh, the Great uh, Awakening, is you began to have Baptists moving into the territory and, of course, winning converts. From the Anglican churches, which were um, apparently not very religiously vibrant, <clears throat> and um, and so the authorities began to um, arrest Baptists who met together to preach, sing, pray, and um, put them in jail. And it was that problem that Madison had to address, and um, he took an interest in how the state of Virginia or the the colony of Virginia would deal with these dissidents. And then he wrote this memorial and Remonstrance, which was really sponsored, which really prompted because um, Patrick Henry wanted to extend, his way of dealing with the problem was to extend the governmental support to others besides the Anglicans. And Madison thought that was really abhorrent. And so he wrote, and he then um, wrote this memorial and remonstrance, a very, very famous document. And he makes two points. One point is that religious convictions are internal beliefs that are a matter of conscience. And so, therefore, they have to be privileged. And secondly, that the um, civil authorities have no cognizance, even uses a word, of religious matters. Um, and um, that then becomes really the the foundation on which um, uh, American jurisprudence uh, deals with the, with these questions. And so you implicitly there to separate the separation of church and the state. Um, I don't know whether you uh, notice one of the things that I was uh, really most <laughs> pleased with. I, I ran across this document by a man named Philip Forno.
2: Did you know that name? Yes. Yes. Have you read Fresno? i haven't read uh no i haven't read his work in the original no but i i've certainly read reference and you, you, you're not talking about freno this is Fresno. no not the publisher no not yeah. the publisher we're talking yeah.
1: about yeah the... well um uh, when i read across that work i i discovered uh the name i think reading uh Meechand's biography of madison and i got very curious and i was able to get uh, a hold of the work and um it's very and, and madison uh, when he learned about it, it was published in the uh, 1780s. When he learned about it, he had his friend at Bradford to get him a copy. And it's almost, and and this Forno says, you know, Locke is the man, and uh, everyone is now following his ideas. And then he lays out these two basic principles, namely that um, religious convictions are a matter of conscience and that the state does have no authority in these in uh, in such matters, and so it's it's a kind of a natural bridge between Locke and um, and Madison, um, and um, so I consider Frontenac really a, a key player in in the development of the American colonial thinkers.
2: But as I s- right, and the, just. To- and just to clarify, this is the for now, he is he is actually based in he lives in England. He was in England and he was dealing with the similar problem in
1: England that is trying to find space for dissenters. And um, so he's a fairly important figure in his time. Um, and um, so, as I say it for me, you know, it was not being really totally familiar with all these materials to find somebody who provided uh, a direct link between John Locke and Madison
2: that was was for me very uh uplifting. Yes. And and you also mentioned of course uh, Thomas Jefferson's famous uh phrase uh, that another's religion neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Um and this is certainly referring back to the concept that peace uh, is obtained through uh, freedom. Um, and it's this, separated, this concept that we now today think of popularly as separation of church and state. It's really, it's liberty of conscience. It is. And of course, you know, you,
1: if you're a historian, you know, you spend years and, and, and this was one of those discoveries because, um, Jefferson, when he wrote his book, uh, notes on the state of Virginia, he, he was not aware of some of the things that, um, that I've been talking about here. But later, um, he discovered this passage from Tertullian. And um, and then he um, wrote uh, a person in Richmond who was selling some books, and one of them was this work of Tertullian. So if you go to the University of Virginia, to the library, um, the um, rare book library, you'll find... Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia. And at the point where he says, one religion's religion, one person's religion doesn't hurt another, Jefferson at the bottom of his own personal copy had written out in Latin the passage from Tertullian, the one that I begin with. And so I live in DC and when I came home and I worked at the Library of Congress uh, on this book, I went over and I knew they had um, uh, at least one copy of Tertullian's works that was owned by Virginia and I called the book up and when I opened it up um, 17th century edition of Tertullian in Latin, leather-bound, small I turned to the page and he had actually underlined the passage and put a big X in the margin I mean, I, I was just uh, overwhelmed um, So I wish that I could have shown a direct link between the formation of Jefferson's ideas in Tertullian but I couldn't and so i just put this in an appendix but it's still pretty exciting for me and
2: so we have this um uh, tradition which uh I, it seems to me that you're continuing in and of yourself when you write this um book of recovering arguments of the past um in a contemporary context uh and so you for example you quote thomas Helwys um and his notion of not ex- only extending liberty to dissenters within the Christian religion, but also to Muslims outside of it. And to me, um, that's a very obviously uh, uh, applicable and relevant um, expansion of the concept of freedom of religion uh, in our modern context here in the 21st century. So you have any thoughts on how our understanding of the development of freedom of religion as a concept that started a, as a personal religious conception that broadened by necessity, obviously, into a political conception, how that can inform our world today, politically? Well, um, I think the point that you uh, just mentioned, Thomas Helwis, um,
1: and it has to do with recognizing that liberty of conscience and religious freedom are rights, that not just uh, accommodations by government. Um, and so it's, I think, very significant that ideas which really are formed within the Christian tradition and Christian thinking have an applicability far beyond, or to put it another way, one of the things that strikes me when you read um, Madison and Ferneau and to a lesser extent Locke is that by the 18th century ideas which had their origins in Christian religious and theological uh, contexts really stand on their own as um human convictions that can uh, be supported without reference to a particular religious tradition. Now um you know a few years ago uh the University of Chicago philosopher wrote a book, Why Tolerate Religion and um the this like song ring in here you now this let me just um the question is whether um with the decline of Christianity and Christian beliefs and convictions and ideas, you really can support uh, a robust doctrine of um, religious freedom, whether, uh, and one way to put this is, is the following. Um, you may have seen it a couple of weeks ago in the um, an op-ed in the wall street journal by name, and named Aaron Rhodes. And he makes the point he's written a book called the desolation of, of rights that what were once rights that were based on nature, and freedom being one of those, have now been multiplied so that they include whatever any particular political group feels must be uh, included in rights. And so you have a debasement of rights. And um, so I think that even though I don't talk about natural law, certainly what I develop is based on conception of natural law. If that is no longer viable, then you really wonder whether you can uh, provide a a rationale for, for rights. The second thing is, and this has to do with jurisprudence, um, I think really one of the larger conclusions from the book is that uh, religious freedom in its historical development is primarily about the rights of religious communities. Um, But American jurisprudence on these matters is so uh, oriented toward individuals. So that it's hard to see. And I don't really, of course, know a great deal about the history of American jurisprudence. How you could make a case for the rights of communities uh, on a legal basis, and I think that would be it seems to me to be uh, one of the uh, challenges that these ideas present to people who are in, in um,
2: basically working in, uh, in law. So this applicability of um, the freedom that's needed uh, for communities, because those are often The ones that are targeted legally um, is still relevant. And so these debates go on. Right. Um, The question is
1: whether there's any legal force, uh, but I I don't really know. It is interesting to me that um, there's been almost more interest in the book from political and legal uh, uh, thinkers than from uh, strictly religious thinkers. Um, And uh, so. That, for me, has been very illuminating.
2: Right. Well, of course, the um, the concern about uh, religious dissent or uh, the treatment of religion and uh, references to God in the most abstract and broad ways has been a perennial concern of the, of the courts. Uh, the Abbott, with a uh, question of freedom of religion in uh, the Masterpiece Cake case uh, uh, with the, from the Colorado uh, Civil Rights Commission. And so these... I think these concerns, both historically and uh, in the historical origins of this debate, inform the contemporary debate, even on the court, Um, because as Elena Kagan has famously said, in some ways, we're all originalists now, (laughs) regardless of whether your political stripe is uh, matching uh, Antonin Scalia or not. That was one of the big influences of Scalia, it seems, is to inject into uh, debates about fundamental rights, uh, the historical understanding of those rights, whether it's at the founding and sometimes even long before. Um, so I, I think that I could easily understand why your work, though it doesn't seem to have direct relevance to American jurisprudence in the 21st century, it certainly is of interest to uh, lawyers and uh, people for secular purposes in regard to how religions treated in the public square. Thank you very much. So... The book is entitled Liberty in the Saints of God, Christian Origins of Religious Freedom, and we've been joined today by its author, Robert Lewis Wilkin. Uh, Mr. Wilkin, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network.